Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the Internet's best kept secret. I don't know how it is for you guys, but for me, this year is flying by, particularly the end of the year, which happens to be my favorite part. Maybe it's because everywhere I go, retail businesses are already shoving garland down my throat and playing those early Christmas songs. But you know what? I love it. I'm a sucker for it. I've always loved Christmas time. I think I get it from my mom. She's an interior decorator, and uh, our house was always just exploding with Christmas cheer. It kind of made the North Pole look like a joke, to be honest. There was one year where I think I counted... We had 31 unique decorative trees in our home. Like, there's some serious cheer levels happening there. So I don't know what it is about this time of year. It could be the weather. It could be the 20,000 volts of artificial electric light being pumped into my eye sockets like a Christmas Frankenstein. Or maybe it's just because I know that uh, I'll get to hang out with family with warm food and Christmas movies. But whatever it is, I love this time of year. And speaking of Christmas and generosity and all of that jazz, I just wanted to give a huge thank you to my latest patrons, Mike, Chris with an X. I think that's how you say it. Chris, 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 I don't know how you say that. And uh, Micah, thank you guys so much. Because of your generosity, because of your giving, I get to spend hours and hours creating this wonderful podcast for everybody's listening pleasure. But once again, thank you to Mike, Chris, and Micah. You guys are awesome. I'm so excited to dive back into the subject of divine healing with you all. Um, I started this all the way back in September, and we're only on the third part here. I can't believe it. But uh, as you guys know, I spent all of October running every which way around the United States preaching the gospel with my good friend Matt Spinks. And so uh, I've posted the audio of some of those sessions on this show for you if you didn't catch it already. But I also got to do an awesome interview with some of my friends, Matt and his wife, Katie, as well as our friend, uh, Kelsey Aper. But now I'm here, I'm settled back in, and I'm so excited to get back into this series on divine healing. We have got a long way to go. Honestly, it's one of those subjects that I've heard a lot of people talk about. But I haven't encountered any one resource that really covers the full scope and depth that I think it really deserves. Now, if you're just jumping on board, hopefully you noticed when you clicked on this episode that you are actually listening to part B, um, which counting the introduction is really the third part of this series. And so I try to write all of my episodes in a way where anyone new could jump in at any time. But I do, of course, recommend that you first go back through part one and part two and introduction to divine healing and part A, because I'm trying to build on what I've already said. But since it's been a few weeks, uh, let me just give everyone a quick recap here and then we will dive headlong into part B. 
So in the introduction, I shared about my family's dramatic encounter with the power of God, where my mom's broken leg and partially deaf ears were instantly supernaturally healed. And then I shared about how this experience radically challenged my inner ecosystem of beliefs about the nature of God and how I had to unlearn years of toxic beliefs. I also talked about how our beliefs about God directly correlate to our experience of God. And so if we find ourselves living with a lack of experience, that's probably an indicator that something is amiss in our beliefs. And then in part A, I shared about how everything, everything, everything comes down to how we interpret the Bible. Every single one of us has an internal lens for processing and understanding the revelation of Scripture. And some of these lenses produce good fruit and some produce not so good fruit. And so I shared about how it is my firm belief that it is always God's will to heal us. No ifs, ands, buts, or exceptions, because Jesus who is the ultimate and final revelation of the Father's nature, never once left someone with sickness or gave them sickness. Okay, and then beyond that, um, I also tackled some of the common arguments of cessationism, which is the widespread belief that God has ceased doing miraculous works in our time because we have the Bible now. Another thing I mentioned is that there's not a single New Testament verse where we see Jesus partnering with, endorsing, enabling, blessing, or otherwise giving people sickness. But on the contrary, there are something like 20 instances in scriptures where it says that Jesus healed all who came to him. And lastly, I mentioned that there are a few key passages that often get twisted and taken out of context as evidence for toxic beliefs about healing. And that is what we're going to get into today. Now, the pre-question I want to start with is why do we end up believing lies about God? Jesus said the thief comes to steal kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life abundant. Acts 10.38 says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. So this passage links sickness with demonic oppression. Well, what does that tell us? That sickness, disease, death, all of these things are in the wheelhouse of the devil. That's devil category. Life, restoration, freedom, healing. These things belong to God. It is so simple. And yet we will do elaborate mental tap dancing routines to try to defend ideas like God gives us sickness to teach us humility. And my question is why? Well, I'll just make my thoughts really plain here. I believe that these theologies are not logical arguments founded in Scripture, but are primarily the product of unprocessed pain and disappointment in our hearts. What do I mean? Well, there's an opening line in a song by the band Alt-J that says, Zero, one, 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 zero, zero, one, one, one. You're crying zeros and I'm hearing one, one, ones. 
And I like how that line just illustrates that there can be a deeply profound disconnect between what somebody says and what we actually hear. Have you ever been around someone who's passive-aggressive? A passive-aggressive person won't tell you what's wrong. Instead, they will use subtle or sometimes not so subtle cues like the silent treatment or sarcasm or slamming the door or saying that there's nothing wrong even when there is something very wrong. And they expect you to just magically pick up on their bad vibes and apologize. If you've ever had the feeling of walking on eggshells around somebody because you don't know where you stand with them, then you've probably felt the influence of passive-aggressive behavior. So when Katie and I first got married, I was most often that person in the relationship. Now, thankfully, we had gone through a few different courses on communication in ministry school, so I at least knew how to recognize and work on this behavior. But what I didn't realize is that deep in my heart, I had this internal assumption that everyone was passive aggressive like me. And so this led to all kinds of misinterpreted information. Katie would say something innocent like, I like your shirt. And I would take that as sarcasm and become insulted. Oh, what do you mean? What's wrong with my shirt? Wait, what? I just said I like your shirt. That's all I meant. And these kinds of funny exchanges would happen all the time where I would misinterpret information as passive aggressive jabs and become triggered or angry. And so eventually I realized what was happening, that I was projecting my own passive aggressive tendencies onto my wife and totally misunderstanding her heart towards me. She was saying zeros, but I was hearing ones because my pain was my interpretive lens for reality. Now, what does this have to do with the Bible? What does this have to do with healing? Well, honestly, everything. Did you know that in a court of law, a prosecutor can legally suppress evidence that contradicts their charges? If a prosecutor believes that somebody is guilty, they have no obligation to present any counter evidence to the jury. It's crazy. But as I've mentioned before, all of us have had experiences, conversations, epiphanies, role models, traumas, and 101 other things that contribute to what we believe God is like. Now, we like to think that we get our theology exclusively from Scripture, from the evidence. I just believe the Bible. But that's just not how it works. Because even as we read the Bible, our internal filters are always present, not just in our individual hearts, but in our communities, denominations, and even traditions. And so what often gets presented to us as unbiased preaching is often just a body of evidence compiled by the internal prosecutor of unprocessed pain and projection. So what ends up happening is when the Bible says zero, all we can see or hear is one. Now, if you've been in church for more than a nanosecond, you've probably heard someone throw around phrases like, God uses sickness to humble us, or God gives us sickness for His glory. But as we're going to see today in our investigation, 
These beliefs have no basis in Scripture. But if you've been steeped in church culture long enough, the idea that God causes cancer might sound like the safe, plausible, or even reasonable thing to believe. But just because something sounds true or feels true doesn't mean that it is. Not to overstate my case here, but there was a famous Nazi politician who said that if a lie is repeated often enough, it will become the truth. And this is one of the ways that the Nazis convinced an entire society to abandon basic, decent human morality. Now, some of us have sat in church for years hearing the same old tired lies about our Father God using sickness to get glory or to build our character. And if you sit under the influence of lies long enough, eventually the truth begins to sound foreign and threatening. Well, you can't say it's always God's will to be healed. What if somebody isn't healed? Now, again, that might seem like a safe and responsible position to hold. But as Bill Johnson has pointed out, Jesus actually never gave us instructions on what to do with unanswered prayers. Another reason I think people are deceived in this area is because many of us walk around with a deep subconscious fear that God is not actually all that good and generous. In fact, if you look back at every ancient culture, you will see a common thread in humanity for the need to appease the gods with sacrifice. You see, there's this universal sense that there is some kind of god or gods out there, but whatever it or they are, it's stingy, it's demanding, and if I don't do the right ritual or sacrifice or chant or tap dance or whatever then I won't get the blessing. And my theory is that certain lies about God sound appealing to us because they are tapping into that same ancient, hidden, primal fear. The original lie of the serpent was that God was ultimately holding out on Adam and Eve. Now, for some of us, maybe the reasons for our suspicions towards supernatural healing are a lot simpler. Maybe some of us have just been fed these theologies for generations. And maybe we feel like if something is wrapped up in tradition, then it must be legitimate. But frankly, I don't care if it comes from the Pope's mouth, if it's written in an ancient leather-bound commentary from the Desert Fathers, or if it is preached by a GQ-looking skinny jean-wearing hipster preacher at Joe's McChurch Cafe, if an interpretation of Scripture undermines the goodness of God, the power of God, the love of God, then I reject it. Jesus Christ bleeding on the cross, pouring out every last shred of blessing and mercy that heaven had, independent of our response, that is my lens for interpreting scripture. You might be wondering, why am I harping on this so much? It's because we cannot let fear and pain dictate how we understand things. The Bible says that faith works through love. If we break that sentence down, 
The word works in Greek actually means to be energized or electrified. So faith is energized or activated by love. It's the same word that shows up in James when it says the prayer of a righteous man is effective. The prayer of faith has an electric sort of kingdom power to it. And the word love here is agape, which is divine love, perfect love. Now we know that perfect divine love casts out fear, but in a lot of ways, fear can cast out love. So how? How can we expect to walk in power if our head is filled with theologies that nurse and justify our fear? I said before in this series that we would talk about the practical how-tos, and I definitely will get there. However, I could show you all the right prayers and hand placements and whatever, but none of that actually matters if our hearts are still asking this question, does God love someone enough to heal them? Now, that's not to say that we can't have doubts and unanswered questions. I myself, I don't always see people healed, and I know that there are reasons for that that are way beyond my limited understanding. I'm not saying to walk in healing you have to have perfect theology, but what I am saying is that mountain-moving, electrified faith is energized by the presence of great love in our lives. And so rooting fear-based ideas out of our system is one of the most helpful and practical things we can do if we want to walk in the power of God consistently. So with all of that out of the way, grab your thinking cap, grab a snack, brew some coffee, and let's tackle these lies that we often get fed about God and sickness. Lie number one, God withholds healing to teach us humility. Where do we get crazy ideas like this? I hear this lie most commonly propagated from a misreading of 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, where the Apostle Paul describes having an unnamed thorn in his flesh. He asks Jesus three times to remove it from him, and Jesus basically says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul reasons that this is to keep him humble because of the amazing revelation that he was entrusted with. Secondly, though, I believe it comes from a misunderstanding of suffering and its place in the Christian life. One thing is clear about this passage. Paul was suffering and God allowed it. But the question is, was this suffering a disease? And if not, then what kind of suffering is it that God allows? So let's read this passage together and then take a look under the hood to see what's really going on. Picking up in verse 7 here, it says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, first of all, if we take a look at the immediate context of this passage, Paul is defending his authority as an apostle. Because just a few sentences earlier, when speaking of false apostles, this is what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten many times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and night a night in the day I have spent in the deep, and I have been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. So, what we read earlier about the thorn in the flesh is part of this exact same flow of thoughts. Paul is giving a near exhaustive list of his qualifications in the area of weakness, and never once does he mention sickness as a legitimate marker of his apostleship. But what he does mention is persecution and the presence of signs and wonders, which by the way, signs and wonders in the Bible always includes healing. And so this weakness that he's talking about is very clearly not sickness, but persecution. And he's still talking about persecution by the time we get to verses 7 through 9. Okay, secondly, Paul says that the thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. Well, the word messenger in Greek is the word angelos, which is obviously where we get the word angel. It's a living being. And did you also know that the phrase thorn in the flesh appears elsewhere in the Bible? Just to keep things uh, spicy here, I'm going to read this in the King James Version. Joshua 23, 13 says, Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your side, thorns in your eyes, lest ye, until ye perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given to you. Alright, and secondly, in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 24, it says, And there shall be no more a pricking briar unto the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn of all that are round about them, that despise them, and they shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, as you can see from both of the times that it's used, thorn in the flesh is not talking about sickness. It's a metaphor for enemies, annoying people. It essentially means the same thing that it does today. It's saying, you're being a real pain in the butt. Well, nobody says that and then starts inspecting their butt. 
Like we know when we hear that, that it's a figure of speech. But thirdly here, Paul says that this messenger of Satan came to torment him. Most translations actually use the word buffet. No, not buffet, like old country buffet, although eating there might cause some satanic sounds to escape from you. But the word here is, and I hope I'm saying this right, kolafizo, which means specifically to beat violently with the fist, to strike over and over. Is this beginning to sound a little bit less like some kind of disease or sickness and a lot more like a harassing spirit of persecution? But the big one here that people try to use to say that uh, he was describing an illness of some kind is the use of the word infirmity in some translations. But infirmity doesn't always automatically equal sickness. The word is in Greek is asthenia, which means weakness or troubles. It's actually the same phrase used in Romans 8.26 when it says, The Spirit of the Lord helps us in our weaknesses or infirmities. Now that passage is obviously not about the Lord helping you pray while you get through the coronavirus. It's, it's talking about how the Holy Spirit strengthens us even in the midst of our problems, especially persecution. And so if we take all of these clues together, the greater context of Paul's rant on persecution, the fact that thorn in the flesh is a biblical idiom for pestering enemies, the fact that it's clearly some kind of living demonic entity with violent intentions, well, it starts to become pretty clear that Paul is not saying that the Lord wouldn't heal him of a disease, but that he wouldn't remove persecution from his life. Now, here's why that's a very important distinction. This might be hard for some people to swallow, but Jesus promised us that we would be persecuted. This doesn't mean, though, that he wants our lives to be filled with suffering. The reason persecution is specifically allowed to take place is because it furthers the global advancement of the gospel. Everywhere Paul went, people got angry. <laughs> Every time the enemy tried to get Paul killed, it backfired radically. There was one instance where a riot broke out against Paul and he was taken to the authorities and they beat him illegally because they didn't realize he was a Roman citizen. And so Paul was able to leverage that moment to gain an audience with a high profile governor in Rome so he could preach the gospel there. That was his goal. What the enemy meant for evil, for his persecution, was actually just more fuel on the Holy Ghost fire. Or think about China. The underground church in China has been in full-blown revival for decades. Some of the most insane testimonies of salvation and healing and deliverance and dead raisings have come from China where it's illegal to be Christian in a lot of parts. People go to prison and die for their faiths. Homes are raided and livelihoods are destroyed. But all it does is bolster the faith of those Chinese Christians. This is the kind of suffering that God allows. Now that might sound harsh or unpleasant, and no doubt it is. But every single person who's gone through that kind of suffering for the Lord wears it as a badge of honor. Paul wanted to be killed for his faith. 
I once met a lady from the Middle East who had her head blown in half by a bomb while attending church. And so the Lord appeared to her in a vision and raised her from the dead. And she asked Jesus if she could keep the scars as a reminder and as a badge of honor. And so to this day, all down her head, just under her hairline, is a gnarly scar. There is a heavy, weighty glory on that kind of suffering that our contented, comfortable Western butts could probably learn a thing or two from. But that is an entirely different thing from embracing suffering for suffering's sake. For some weird reason, church culture has turned suffering into a virtue and made it about your personal character development. The idea that God needs to cause terrible things to happen to you to make you holy is a complete dishonor to the cross. Sickness does not make you holy. The cross of Jesus already did that. The Bible says that you have been co-crucified with Christ. Your sinful nature has already been done away with. It is dead, gone, and buried. Now granted, we're all still learning how to live out of that true divine nature. But even then, sickness is not our teacher. The Holy Spirit is. Is not God, the Lord of bliss and the source of life, that is our Father. How can we confuse a child slowly dying of cancer with the handiwork of our Father? If any earthly father intentionally poisoned their child to teach them a lesson, they would go straight to prison. And people always say, oh, well, you know, we're fallen creatures who don't know what true goodness is. You know, God defines goodness differently. You know, His ways are higher than our ways. Oh, really? Well, why then did Jesus appeal to our parental instincts when he said, if you being evil know how to give your children good gifts? If you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? No, he's a good father. He's a good shepherd. Now, we may not always understand the reasons behind everything that happens. And it's not always clear why everybody doesn't get healed. And Later on in the series, when we get to the book of Job, we can explore the why question a little more deeply. But even if we don't know why, we still have the capacity to understand that sickness, death, and disease all find their origin in evil. It is the devil that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to bring abundant life. Never once did we see Jesus give somebody sickness or tell them to wait for healing until they had learned their lesson. No, instead, he aggressively destroyed the works of the devil everywhere he went. Acts 10.38, he went about doing good and healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. He never partnered with Satan because Satan cannot cast out Satan And curses and blessings cannot flow from the same well. My friends, this is good, clear, living water that we're drinking. So do yourself and the whole wide world a favor and get this stinking thinking out of your wells. 
You guys are getting me all fired up, but um, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into a very troubling and odd passage from the book of Revelation. everybody now I've said more than once in this series already that there is not a single instance where we see Jesus Christ who is the perfect image and likeness of the Father giving somebody sickness the only exception that I can think of is this verse right here in Revelation chapter 2 it's uh, verses 20 through 22 it says this this is the words of Jesus nevertheless I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast on her a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways." I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. (laughs) Gentle, gentle Jesus. Now, I don't have time to give the book of Revelation all of the attention that it deserves in this episode. So for that, I would suggest that you check out this YouTube video that I did on Revelation. Um, I'll put a link to it in the description so you can find it easily. But let me just sum it up in, in short. We need to be very careful with how we parse out what is literal and what is figurative or spiritual in the book of Revelation. For the most part, it seems like the church gets this part exactly bass-ackwards. We've been taught to interpret the seven letters to the churches as somehow allegorical, while taking all of this imagery of asteroids and giant hailstones and dragons as literal. But Revelation is not primarily a book about the end times, about the United Nations, about the year 2020, or anything like that. So put away the charts, put away the timelines, turn off the news, because all of that stuff is way off the mark. No, the book of Revelation is exactly what it says in the title. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Something spectacularly earth-shattering happened across every dimension and plane of existence. And the book of Revelation is a peek behind the curtain into the spirit realm during the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a retelling of Christ's ultimate victory and lordship over sin and death as it was experienced in the invisible realm. So John the Revelator 
wrote this book in a time of great trouble and persecution to remind believers of the majesty and the worthiness and the holiness of Jesus as the one true God. The whole book just rings with themes of keeping your heart free from idols and worshiping Jesus alone. It's all about, you know, being free from the influence of evil world systems like Babylon and the harlot and the empire. And so all of that stuff is set up in the beginning by letters to seven churches. And this is where that passage is found. Now, these letters were written to real people going through real temptations. But that doesn't mean that the imagery of sickness and death should be taken literally, as in Terminator Jesus is coming to literally kill people with his macho lightning rocket launcher if they don't repent. Okay, our first clue that this is talking about something more spiritual is John's use of the name Jezebel. In the Old Testament, this woman Jezebel became the archetypical representative of a seducing false prophetic spirit that leads people into idolatry and compromise. Now, just like these letters are addressed to the angels over the seven churches, which I believe is exactly what it's saying, it's to the angels, I believe Jesus here is confronting the influence of some kind of evil spirit or theological movement that was corrupting his church, not a flesh and blood person. So following that line of thought, whatever punishment Jesus is talking about is, again, not a flesh and blood sickness or, or judgment in that sense, but it's coming after this entity. Okay, now, secondly, the phrase that often gets translated as a sickbed is actually a double entendre. It's the Greek word klinin, which means a bed for a sick person, like a hospital bed, but it also means a couch for reclining. So these couches would have been reclined on during these pagan feasts while they're worshiping and eating food sacrificed to idols. They also could have been used for ritualistic sex. There was uh, one commentator I was reading that summed up Jesus' warnings like this. This is essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your bed of whoredom will become a bed of anguish. Okay, so there's wordplay going on here. And it's further emphasized by Jesus' strong warning, I will strike your children dead. Does this mean that Jesus is literally going to start killing children? Well, no, I don't think so. But I hope we all know this by now, but children are born as the result of sex. And I think Jesus is, is, is wielding the strongest possible language to say that anything that is the result of your adulterous sleeping around with false gods will be destroyed. It reminds me of John the Baptist's warnings of trees without fruit being chopped down or the Apostle Paul talking about fire that will consume any building not made of stone. You know, he talks about like the straw being consumed by fire and all that stuff. So the judgment is real. It is real. It is horrible. It is true destruction. But even so, we have to understand that we cannot over-literalize the imagery. And this is actually consistent with the whole Bible. A lot of the judgment language in the Bible paints a picture 
on the surface of a God who's actively and directly harming people. But then later we see that that judgment is almost always played out as a sort of lifting of the hand of God, a lifting of protection from the consequences that people deserve rather than like a direct participatory action. Okay, in other words, you could say it like this. We are not punished for our sins, but by our sins. For instance, in Psalm 7, David talks about how God is sharpening his sword and readying his bow to strike evildoers. But then immediately after that, it says this, whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit that they have made. The trouble that they cause recoils on them and their violence comes down on their own heads. This kind of thing happens so often in the Old Testament. God would warn Israel repeatedly to stop worshiping idols, and when they refused, he lifted his hand of protection, and they were ravaged by neighboring nations. I think that we actually get a mysterious glimpse of this same dynamic in 1 Corinthians 11. It says that some of the saints in Paul's day were partaking of communion in an unworthy manner and getting sick and dying. Notice, it doesn't say that God was giving people sickness and killing them, but rather somehow, by their total disregard for communion, they were effectively blocking the healing, life-giving power of God from their gatherings, and it was causing them to get sick. So in short, I believe that Jesus was warning this church not to listen to the seducing, false prophetic spirit that was encouraging them to worship idols with sexually immoral behavior. Although I don't believe Jesus was literally making people sick, I think he was spelling out that they would reap serious destructive consequences from their spiritual sickness. He's saying ruin will come upon you if you continue down this path. Honestly, the words of Jesus here sound a lot to me like the poetic words of Solomon in Proverbs. This is from Proverbs. It says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom and listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment and your lips will express what you've learned. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as poison, as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave, for she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't realize it. Now, here's, here's the very end of that proverb, and I want you to catch the parallel here. It says, The Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control, and he will be lost because of his great foolishness. Now, doesn't that kind of sound a little bit like Jesus' words when he says, I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds? I'm not saying that we don't take that passage seriously, that we treat judgment as something that's light or like not real or something. 
What I am saying is, just because the Bible often uses this sort of smackdown Terminator language doesn't mean that God is aggressively and actively punishing people. And it certainly doesn't mean that this one outlier against the mountains of verses that say that Jesus doesn't cause sickness, it doesn't mean that this one passage undoes all that and God is indeed causing people to get sick. So in closing here, why is this so important? Because so many people out there get sick and then believe it's because they're being punished by God. You know, it's one thing to say that sin opens the door for the enemy to harass us with sickness, but it's another thing entirely to say that God gives us sickness to punish our sin. I'm not denying that if someone is sick, there may actually be the possibility that a pattern of sinful behavior invited evil consequences into their life. But God is both the healer of the body and of the heart. His goal is always the restoration of the afflicted. Even if someone is sick because of their own actions, the heart of God toward them is grace and mercy. But if God punishes people with sickness, then it ultimately spits on the cross. Because suddenly, we're back in this position where we have to figure out how to appease God all over again. To, you know, to pray for a sick person becomes this weird guessing game where we're trying to figure out if we're destroying the works of the devil or the works of God. The simple fact is, it is impossible to pray in faith if we don't know the will of God. So how can we be sure that healing is the will of God? Well, my friends, I want to invite you once again to look at Jesus. When he began his ministry, he quoted this passage as his mission statement. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. So a captive is someone who is undeserving of their capture. They're a victim. A prisoner, however, is someone who's being held because of their actions. They're being punished. All of us, at one point or another in our lives, have been both prisoners and captives, victims and perpetrators. But in either case, God is the liberator. In Christ, by the blood of Jesus, God has blown the doors off of our prisons. Salvation is not just something that God is doing, but salvation and restoration are who He is. So please, let's not allow a couple of misunderstood passages to drown out the mountains of passages that make the will of God crystal clear. Freedom, deliverance, restoration, mercy, pardon, and healing. These are the works of God. Whew. I hope that that was speaking to some of you guys as much as it was speaking to me. I could feel my own heart just getting worked on and electrified once again by this good, good news. But that is all the time I want to take for today. So thank you so much for joining me. And next week, 
uh, we're going to dive into even more misunderstood passages about healing. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation continues to open your eyes to the goodness of our Father God and that every last lie and trace of insecurity or fear about who He is will fall to the ground. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind-the-scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted and grounded in His everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.